Hi, it's Fraser here. And before we get going with the Spike podcasts, with the Christmas season just around the corner, I'd like to remind you all about the Spiked shop. You can get your favourite Spiked slogan on t-shirts, hoodies, tote bags and mugs in all shapes, sizes and colours. Why not treat yourself or your pro-democracy, pro-freedom loved ones? To visit our shop, just go to spiked-online.com and click the dark blue shop button in the top right corner. Now, on with the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Spiked Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and back with me this week we have Spiked's Deputy Editor Tom Slater. Hello. And no Ella Whelan this week, so joining us instead we have Spiked columnist Luke Gittos. Hello. We'll be focusing again this week on the general election, including the latest state of the polls, Labour's anti-Semitism crisis, the NHS, the TV debates and interviews and much, much more. YouGov's poll is forecasting a 68-seat majority for the Conservative Party. No other, apology for how you've Any other this. form of life. And try Andrew, one more time. No, no hang apology. on a minute, Andrew. I think he's sort of slightly not in, in, in total control. I think there's now a culture of anti-Semitism. The NHS is up for sale. The NHS is not for sale. There's no change in strategy. I don't know where this story has come from. This week, YouGov produced its greatly anticipated MRP poll. That stands for multi-level regression and post-stratification, and it allows us to understand the state of the polls on a seat-by-seat basis. At the last election, it was one of just two polls to correctly project a hung parliament instead of the big Tory majority that other pollsters expected. And the results this time suggest that if the election were to be held this week, the Conservatives would win a healthy majority with 359 seats, whereas Labour would get just 211 seats. Obvious caveats and pinches of salt aside, Tom, um, what did you make of this poll? Well, it's definitely significant. Of course, it's a huge piece of work. You know, there's about 100,000 interviews that go into it and then they project it onto a seat-by-seat basis. So, you know, again, as you say, with all the kind of caveats involved, it still definitely shows kind of where the direction of travel is at the very least. So the Tories looking at a pretty chunky majority, if this is to be believed, or if it bears out for the next two weeks of 68 seats. Labour losing 51, that would make it its worst results since 1983, you know, longest Mm. suicide note in history territory. So very, very significant. But I think one of the most striking things about it is how um, the Tories are projected to pick up most of their seats from directly from Labour. So they're due to pick up about 47 seats, 44 of which would come from Labour. And it's really reaching into those quote unquote red wall constituencies, places in the Midlands, places in the North. And what's interesting is, again, you know, who knows what will actually happen on the day. But if you go constituency by constituency, some very symbolic ones as well. So West Bromwich East, which is Tom Watson's old seat that he's mm. now stepped down from. Don Valley, which is Caroline Flint's seat. Bolsover, the beast of Bolsover, Dennis Skinner's seat. You know, a lot of places which have either never voted Tory before or haven't voted Tory in a very, very long time see very much to be in play. It's worth remembering, I think, that a lot of this is the work that Theresa May started and didn't finish. You know, Theresa May did very well in these kinds of constituencies last time around. She only won six of them, but the percentage of the vote definitely shot up. Speaking, you know, to people who are in these places and are sort of going around reporting, it's quite clear that a lot of people are at least as much, if not more, kind of repelled by Jeremy Corbyn as they are attracted to Boris Johnson. I think that's worth bearing in mind. But nevertheless, I think it's clear that unless this thing is entirely wrong, then that Mm -hmm. kind of de-alignment slash realignment of British politics that we've been seeing, particularly more and more working class places moving towards the Tories is definitely going to continue on. And that I think is again going to be the most fascinating thing about this election. Luke, your thoughts? Well, the polls have been hinting at a, a, a relatively large Tory lead for some time. And the 
Corbynistas have been talking about their ground game in the last two weeks is very mm. significant and particularly relying on the fact that Corbyn appears in 2017 to improve his position the more public exposure he gained. Now, I think what this poll suggests is that they're at risk of really overestimating the impact of their ground game because if this poll is right, Labour is forecast not to gain any seats at all. And part of the reaction has been, well, I find, you know, some Corbynistas are saying we find it very hard to believe that given the amount of effort we've put in on the ground in some of these seats that we won't end up winning them. Mm. And I think they probably underestimate just how hard a task they have set their ground team because in some of these seats, Tom's right to say that it's worth remembering that Jeremy Corbyn in terms of trust actually polled lower than Boris Johnson in a salvation poll earlier this month. So people are very wary of Corbyn, but also they are asking voters to believe in promises where Labour, as we know, have capitulated on one of their big promises to the voters in the last election, which was to honour the 2016 referendum. And I think Brexit plays into the issues around Corbyn and trust because he does appear very equivocatory around Brexit, not Mm. just, you know, and I think even Remain voters see that this is him sitting on the fence and being dishonest about his position. So I I think that the the key point is that I I think that Labour are at risk of overestimating the impact that their ground game is going to have in this last two weeks. Maybe I'll be proved wrong. But there's some really important seats they need to win, like Southampton, Itchen, where the Conservative majority is only 31, and they've been hitting them very hard. And this poll says it's not going anywhere. So that perhaps suggests they have too much faith in their people on the ground. It's interesting because some of the kind of other polling has suggested a slight narrowing of the vote, you know, pushing towards that kind of 2017 hung parliament scenario. But then when you look on a seat by seat level, it just, it just doesn't seem anywhere near as likely. One of the clear impacts this poll has had is that Labour seem to have at least changed strategy mm. um, a little bit. They are noticing the fact that the Tories are taking seats off them in, in, in leave areas. I yeah. wonder if you want to comment on that, Tom. Yeah, no, it does seem that they've changed tack. It's probably as much a result of their own internal polling and the, what they're getting back from canvases as much as it is from YouGov's big release the other night. But they very explicitly said they're now going to target those kinds of Labour leave seats. I think it's a vindication of what of people on the Labour leave side of the argument have been saying for a very long time, which is that a path to not necessarily just Labour victory, but Labour clinging on was always through leave voting marginal seats. You know, mm. that was obvious to anyone from the beginning yet now they are changing tack what they're attempting to do is effectively try and convince voters that their promise of a second referendum is a genuine choice that it's not just a kind of backdoor to remain which as we all know is a complete lie (laughs) because what they're offering is you know remain versus an incredibly soft brexit which to be honest it doesn't seem like anyone in labor would even campaign for certainly Mm. not full throatedly so they're going to send out by the sounds of it richard bergen ian lavery kind of northern mps who none of which actually campaign for leave we should be clear but are just seen as somewhat more sympathetic to it broadly speaking but I would be amazed if any of this washed at this point. You know, you see some of the arguments that Corbyn outriders are making. They're trying to sound sympathetic to these people and failing miserably. You know, you've got Owen Jones going around saying, you know, we just have to convince them that Brexit really isn't the real issue. It's a question of public services. And again, it's this treatment of Labour leavers, even by relatively sympathetic factions within the Labour Party, as if they are just like this kind of like senile relative who you have to kind of indulge, play along, but ultimately, you know, not let them hurt themselves too much. They have that kind of approach to them. And I, I would be 
amazed if they manage to turn around the sense that they don't have their best interests at heart and they certainly don't want to implement Brexit. How they're going to turn that around in two weeks seems to be a pretty tall order. And I mean, the, the dreadful polling that we've seen is just one aspect of Labour's woes this week. So on Monday evening, the Chief Rabbi Ephraim Mervis made an unprecedented intervention into the campaign, bringing Labour's anti-Semitism problem right back into the fore of the public debate. He wrote in the Times that the Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, was unfit for high office and that he had brought poison back into politics. Luke, what did you make of this really striking intervention? Well, it came at the same time as revelations regarding Holly Rigby, who Mm. was some of you may know by face, if not by name, was a Labour activist at the forefront of their abolished private schools programme. And Holly Rigby was very critical of the article and claimed that that the rabbi was a Tory voter and was motivated Mm. by party political intentions. And then video emerged of her giving a speech in which she claimed that Israel was a a racist endeavour and and explicitly criticising the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. What was striking about, and we'll probably come on to the interviews, but Corbyn's response to this interview in the course of the interviews with Andrew Neil really reveals that he treats this as an internal party problem and is incapable of making the connection between his politics and the issue. So Mm. he sees it as uh, an appropriate response to say, well, I fixed the internal party mechanisms for dealing with anti-Semitism. And you think what you fail to do there is link up how the politics that you've been a part of for a very long period of time lends itself to what is now a very structural issue within not only the Labour Party, but in the left more broadly. And I think that's also really reflected in the way they deflect this by saying that this is, uh, we should also remember Islamophobia and anti-disabled prejudice. This is just like any other prejudice. And I think it's worth just making the point, I think Tom made the point well in his article on Spiked earlier this week, uh, that really this is a lot more serious than name calling. Mm. What is emerging on the left at the moment is a lot more serious than Boris's remarks about Muslim garments. You know, left wing anti-Semitism at the moment is about really reading malevolent intentions into quite fundamental beliefs of Jewish people. So take, for example, the remark that Holly Rigby is uh, recorded as saying, you know, Israel is a racist endeavour. What that does, the reason why that is part of the IHRA definition is precisely because it reads malevolence Mm. into Jewish people's desire for self-determination. It says your presence in Israel is not a result of your wish to be self-determining. It's a result of your racism and your bigotry. And what more appropriate or what more apposite illustration of the the rot of anti-Semitism than that sentiment that Israel is a racist endeavour? And so Corbyn's response is entirely inadequate to treat this as some narrow party political issue. And the fact that he can't see beyond the walls of his own party and see how the problem has taken root in his own politics, I think is very worrying. Tom, could you could you maybe tell us a bit more about the, the politics and give you know mm. some of the examples of cases? Because sometimes I think it's quite frustrating having this discussion because there are a lot of people who will just say, well, yeah. I don't see it. I don't know what mm. you're talking about. This is just about Palestine or something like that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's almost become the wallpaper of general British political discussion, which is an abhorrent place to be in when you really think about it. And it's almost because we've heard all of these examples and these criticisms so many times that you almost become inured to the, the potency of them and the seriousness of them. So on the one hand, you have the question of, are they dealing with these things internally particularly well? As um, Ephraim Mervis raised in his article, you know, there's at least 130 cases outstanding. You look at some of these in particular and the decisions that have been made, you know, obviously anti-Semitic cartoons being posted by members, which are effectively just, you know, a light telling off and then they're allowed to go on their merry way. But also, again, this goes to the top of the Labour Party. You know, I, th- I thought it was fascinating this week, everyone trying to deflect onto Boris Johnson and the letterboxes comment on whatever. In 2012, Jeremy Corbyn invited 
to the House of Commons for tea, a guy called Ride Salah, who was convicted in Israel for repeating the blood libel. Mm. That's the equivalent of like Boris Johnson hanging around with like a BNP official or something like that, if not probably even more extreme. This is the fact that we haven't almost digested this, I find very strange. The mural situation, again, there is nothing comparable to this at the same time. And as you say, the reason for this is that it's not just procedural, it's the fact that there is this ideological kind of combination of factors that have created a situation in which a lot of people in the left of the Labour Party have a very high tolerance for anti-Semitism, seem to hang out with a lot of anti-Semites and don't necessarily see when even their own number are stumbling into this. On the one hand, I think it's about, as we've talked about, this kind of myopic obsession with Israel, this mm-hmm. idea that it's this uniquely evil racist state, you know, to almost exceptional in, in its malevolence. You combine that with this kind of really degraded, idiotic anti-imperialism that sees my enemy's enemy as my friend and willing to therefore call people like Hamas and Hezbollah your friends, as as Jeremy Corbyn famously did at one particular meeting. And then also this broader conspiratorial mindset, which increasingly sees everything from foreign affairs through to global capitalism as a kind of plot, as Mm. something which is about cabals of people. And when you go along that line of thinking, you're eventually going to land with the Jews. That's just how conspiratorial thinking historically works. And I think for a very long time, I've been willing to suggest that this is particularly with kind of people in the mainstream Corbyn Easter movement that this is a kind of unwitting racism if you like or an unwitting tolerance for racism they have this blind spot as a combination of all the factors that we've talked about but I think seeing particularly the irked almost irritated and very dismissive response we saw this week at what point does a blind spot become something a bit darker than that you know at what point does having double standards on the question of anti-semitism morph into singling out Jews and treating them differently and at what point does being defensive about anti-semitism actually turn into a genuine animus towards Jewish people for raising these concerns. Now, I dare say this week, it feels like we've crossed the line into something a little bit darker in that respect. I wanted to, you know, touch on that. You're saying um, they're feeling a bit irked. That sentiment really came across in, in Jeremy Corbyn's interview with Andrew Neil, where he just he just looked irritated, bored, and, you know, dismissive of these concerns, you know, unable to apologise on air, unable to, for quite a while, accept that it was racist to talk about Rothschild Zionist mm. plots. I mean, does anyone else want to comment on that in that particular interview? Well, yeah, I thought it was an interesting response to that particular example he was given about the Rothschilds. And he, his response was, it's an, and it's an anti-Semitic trope. Mm. And what I thought was interesting, and he was very keen not to say that it was anti-Semitic or that saying it was anti-Semitic. So I guess what he was trying to do was distance anti-Semitic feeling or anti-Semitic motivation from the remark, mm. which is interesting in a way, because... And I think they do that quite a lot. They say, oh, these are tropes and you shouldn't use these tropes. And it's, and it's almost unwitting, you know, as mm. Tom suggested. And it's funny because as we've made the point on Spike previously, in every other area of life, they're very keen to identify unwitting racism. Yeah. You know, that is the, a big part of their approach to identifying and treating racial prejudice is making sure that people's unwitting wrong steps are identified and punished <laughs> and punished. Exactly. But, but I think Cor- Corbyn's answer to that question was attempting to differentiate a trope which could be used and accidentally used and used without malice and, and, and intent from simply anti-Semitism, which is used with intent. Mm. So I think that was a very interesting response. And, and, and I agree generally with, you, with your remarks about how he treated the issue in general. But it, what is also remarkable is the, the kind of Corbynista Twitter reaction was that this was an excellent interview. And it went incredibly well. And you sort of <laughs> I think, think it was just Darren Bastani. Well, maybe, 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 maybe just one. Yeah. The rest didn't comment. Maybe just one. Uh, well, yeah, I noticed that a lot of them were noticeable by their absence in the aftermath of that interview. You're right. Yeah. Brendan O'Neill described it on Spiked as one of the worst political performances of all time. And Tom, do you agree with that? Oh, completely. And it just shows that, I mean, across so many issues, there's the anti-Semitism thing, which we've, we've talked about a, a fair bit. There's also just the 
almost irritation with coming under scrutiny. You see this with Corbyn increasingly, is that as soon as he's asked a difficult question, that kind of almost passive-aggressive aspect. Mm. Of, can I finish? Can I finish? You know, this idea that if he's not allowed the space to just deliver his obviously pre-planned points um, and actually face tough questioning on some of his positions, that it's almost a kind of imposition, it's rude, you know. And I think it is, it's kind of a piece with the anti-Semitism thing. It's a bit of a basic point, but with Corbyn, it's fascinating because he is ideological, but he's also not at the same time. I think there's a big element to both himself and the broader movement he represents which just believes itself to be in this kind of community of the good, mm. which thinks of itself as to be a positive force in the world, also has this very mad conspiratorial everyone's out to get us, probably including the Jews type kind of mindset, which means any kind of criticism becomes this inc- this huge kind of imposition. I thought in the in the midst of that car crash interview, amidst everything else, you know, the fact that he couldn't answer basic questions on various things and all the rest of it, that really came through, I think. You're not dealing with someone who's there making specific arguments, it's just mm. asserting his, his moral authority in a way. Yeah, that's very true. The very next day in order to try and deflect from this kind of car crash. Uh, Corbyn made his big announcement on the NHS. He claimed to have proof that the NHS was for sale. And let's be honest, this was a massive dead cat. He was waving, you know, 451 pages of documents. They related to preliminary scoping talks with the US, but Corbyn said that they were talks in an advanced stage, when actually we all know actually it would be impossible to open talks with the US before we leave the mm. EU, and certainly impossible for the UK to state any you know official negotiating um, positions before that. And they didn't really mention the NHS much, <laughs> and certainly didn't have it, any evidence um, of a Donald Trump plot to privatise our NHS. Mm. I mean, what did you make of this this strange kind of stunt? Well, I think it was desperate stuff, obviously, in the aftermath of the Andrew Neil interview. And I think a lot of people will read it that way in the public. I think people will understand that this was a bit of a stunt to attempt to repair some of the damage. And really, it's Labour's version of the cost of Corbyn. You Mm. know, it is their negative Mm. campaign pitch. And this is actually a point for both sides, really, that, you know, there is very little evidence that the British public respond well to negative campaigning. You know, Exhibit A, the 2016 vote, when Remain's big mistake was to proceed entirely on a negative basis. So for the same reason, I think that the cost of Corbyn argument just isn't going to wash with people. This idea that the NHS is up for sale, whatever that means, you know, Mm. I don't even think that idea communicates very well. Mm. But as you say on Spike Fraser, you know, a a number of areas of the NHS are already uh, under private control. You know, when I go into the pharmacy to buy my asthma inhalers, I have to pay for them. I mean, I don't know whether they're supplied privately or not, but it's not an entirely free at the point of demand service. And to pretend otherwise is ridiculous. And I do think that the, uh, you know, as you've said, a number of the claims have been fact-checked and shown to be completely false. And and the actual, uh, you know, the detail of the discussions related to drug pricing, which... Malcolm Gladwell made an interesting point where he sort of said, well, why wouldn't we experiment with drug pricing and and using the buying power of the NHS to the greatest possible advantage, which presumably means exposing it to different buyers and seeing what is out there. So I think um, there is a lot to be explored about the potential of uh, opening the NHS up a little bit more. And I think that this scaremongering that Labour is attempting is a mad electoral tactic and also, as you say, completely built on lies. Yeah, and I think what was interesting is that the, the things that we did learn from those papers were nothing particularly new. As you've said, you know, there's a lot on, on drug pricing, but we know that that is a trade priority for the US and we know that the US has certain intentions, mm. wants to extend the life of patents. You know, those are not good things for the UK and that's certainly true. But, you know, this is the US trying to look for a business advantage. That's the nature of trade talks. They're not going to come into a trade talk saying that they want to give away medicines for free. I mean, it would just be ludicrous to 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 paint it in that way. But then 
what you have is this this trade negotiation is then portrayed by Labour and in the words of one of their emails to supporters as, as basically, you know, converting the NHS into an entirely private mm. system where it says, imagine opening a five-figure bill for your cancer treatment. Imagine paying to give birth, paying to have a checkup at the GP. That's what Boris Johnson and Donald Trump want. I mean, it's just a ludicrous story, isn't it? It's, it's funny as well because I'm old enough to remember when the Labour left were talking about how TTIP was going to be such a nightmare for the selling off of the <laughs> NHS by didn't of our uh, membership of the European Union, this mm. coming trade agreement with the US. So it's kind of interesting to see a lot of those arguments being rehashed. And broadly speaking on the question of kind of the, the fact that Labour feel the need to bring it back onto the NHS. Now, we know that historically this has been a very strong issue for them, although yeah. it's interesting that that's starting to kind of wane a little bit, at least in relation to some of the polling. In the context of Brexit, I think it's very, very telling because it's this very stark reminder that it, the only way they can really relate or try to connect or try to speak to working class people is this, this idea that we look after you. You know, mm. this is the only way that they can really m- make a kind of moral or political case for why they should be in charge is via the NHS because it's very degraded, doesn't really have um, anyone's sense of kind of, you know, political independence or what they actually want for the future of their communities and nation. It's just purely like we are here to look after you. Yeah. And these malevolent capitalists, you know, are, are going to um, scupper that. And I think that on the one hand, it's a tactical move that is, you know, has been done every time. Everyone, you know, takes the mick out of the number of times that Labour have said over the years, you've got 24 hours to save the <laughs> NHS. But I think in the context of Brexit, it's particularly stark because they do see working people as basically people to scaremonger to about public services and just try and bring them in that way rather than try to inspire them with anything more substantial in that respect. Well, it's true. I mean, and the more they turn against the people in terms of, you know, scuppering their vote for Brexit, the more they feel this urge to put themselves on the side of the people against the the billionaire capitalists, the mega corporations, you know, all these people scheming to screw us over in some shape or form. You're listening to the Spiked podcast. Spiked has no subscriptions and no paywalls. All of our content is free. We rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spiked, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. If you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spiked a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com. And another person who hasn't had a good week, it's, it's been pretty bad all around, hasn't it? Um, it's been uh, Joe Swinson um, of the Lib Dems. We spoke uh, last week about the poll that showed that the more the voters see her, um, the more they dislike her. But this week they've they've actually, you know, kind of pulled back from their more extreme Brexit position of unilaterally revoking Article 50 and reverted to a kind of second referendum um, policy. Luke, what's your, what's your view on the Lib Dems? Well, I think it's fascinating the way that these anti-democratic policies crumble in the face of democratic pressure. Mm. I think that's been very, very satisfying to watch. And I think that this rollback um, is a reflection of the fact, and it's always worth reminding ourselves, that most Remainers aren't Remoners. You know, yeah. there was a piece published by Owen Jones uh, today, which um, makes the point that a lot of Labour canvassers are experiencing this on the doorstep, where actually Remain voters are still angry with Labour because they're not upholding the vote. And mm. if you can imagine that Labour taking a more qualified position than the Lib Dems, it's very clear that no one is on board with this kind of anti-Brexit extremism, apart from a very, very small slither of people. And I think going back to the uh, YouGov poll, with regards to the Lib Dems, their their, their impact uh, is a lot 
less than they would have imagined. You know, they're mm. not having the kind of impact on the Tory vote as, as they would have liked on the anti-Brexit slice of the Tory vote. They're not making gains in that regard. So I just think this it, it is an illustration of the fact that people aren't hot on the extremism that they're pushing and most Remainers aren't Remainers. And also, you know, I think this point was made on the podcast last week that really the broader project that they're offering is not very appealing. You know, this is kind of Osborne-style austerity, um, very little by way of actual positive policies. Mm. When you build your whole campaign around a very negative message and it's a negative message people don't agree with, you're mm. going to be in real problems. And finally, let's talk a bit about the Conservatives, kind of the elephant in the room. I mean, they're still ahead in the polls that we discussed but is there a danger of them coasting? I mean, they've released their manifesto on Sunday, incredibly underwhelming stuff. Boris has been shirking a lot of the TV interviews and, and debates. I mean, Tom, what's your view? Yeah, I think it's less a danger of them coasting. It's more the fact that that's clearly their plan is mm. to coast, um, is to try to stick to their core message, which is about getting Brexit done, which we've all heard a million times by now, and try to not upset anyone on any other mm. issue possible. It was interesting, obviously, we had the manifesto launch, was it Sunday afternoon? And just how much they were playing it safe was really interesting. So anything that was slightly eye-catching or that made a bit of waves previously had been kind of discreetly dropped. So there was this plan to drop corporation tax from 19% to 17%. There was this idea that Boris Johnson had trailed during his leadership election about raising the high rate of income tax from 50k to 80k. All of that are completely gone. Now, I don't mm. agree with either of those policies, but at the same time, it's interesting that he feels completely inhibited from doing absolutely anything, even on kind of, you know, tax cutting, which is on one level what the Tory party is for. And then on kind of some of the other policy pledges, particularly the things in which they're trying to appeal to people, it's also just a bit of a mirage, a lot of these things, or they're certainly kind of, you know, mis-selling them a little bit. So there was this pledge on 50,000 more nurses it turns out that 18 and a half thousand of them would just be by keeping nurses in the NHS who otherwise might have left <laughs> which seems to me a strange situation similar things with police similar things with hospitals now on a kind of cynical tactical basis is this a good road to go down probably insofar as where it went really wrong for the Tories last time around was that they had this kind of hubris they thought you know we can open a debate about fox hunting and social mm. care and we could do whatever we want because Corbyn is so repellent and people love Theresa May didn't turn out very well but at the same time I think it does show that kind of amazing sort of mismatch between the Tories and the kind of moment they find themselves in because they are the sort of you know shackled to this project of Brexit that's a clear selling point we are going to deliver what you want this radical change that the that the country has demanded but there is no program or even no ambition whatsoever mm. that kind of meets that and I think their coasting really demonstrates that so far. Luke? Well one thing to remember from the YouGov poll is that the the, the, the majority that is anticipated is at the moment very thin mm. you know on, in a lot of these seats specifically West Bromwich East uh, that, that Tom mentioned earlier the, the, the swing is big but the lead is not big so they, they are still sitting on a very narrow lead mm. and so in one respect if anyone and, and, and if anyone can lose this election this conservative party can because it's also true that they i think they still remain completely hopeless campaigners there yeah. is incompetence after incompetence in this campaign which continues to beg a belief i mean tom mentioned the issues around nhs numbers i mean they go on television and try and defend it so mm. we've seen nikki morgan and matt hancock <laughs> both go on good morning britain one after the other and try and claim <laughs> that this is going to amount to more when really what they're doing is bringing back the same people i mean it really does 
raise questions about the basic competence of the campaigning, there was the very panicked blog post that's emerged over the last few days from Dominic Cummings. Yeah. There's some reports that he's resigned. I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, some saying he resigned three weeks ago. Some no saying he resigned, he re- possibly resigned so that he could write the blog. Yeah. <laughs> called back to Moscow, probably. Yeah, yeah. But the tone of the blog was uh, mild panic. Mm. Um, you know, entitled bat signal, getting out, your, <laughs> getting out your people as much as possible. And you do think that their real problem with maintaining a consistent campaign acting with a degree of competence. You know, Boris constantly ducking this interview with Andrew Neil is not going to go down well with anyone, I don't think. So I think it, there is a sense in which it's all to play for. And if anything, it's the Tories' election to lose. Mm. And if any Tory party can lose it, it's the current one. You've been listening to The Spike Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, why not give us a rating, a review, or even a donation? We'll be back next week, but for more great spiked content, just go to spiked-online.com.